Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 146, Investing in the Future of American Buddhism. We're joined again by Shambhala Acharya, Judith Zimmer Brown, to continue our exploration of what it would look like to strategically invest in the future of American Buddhism. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. And maybe one of the most tenuous areas seems to be the last, which is patronage. Oh, this Uh, one is the one I feel probably most intensely about because I think it has the potential to sabotage the other three. So since we're talking on the radio and I'm not giving a keynote address, I'm going to be maybe a bit more frank. Okay, great. (laughs) Please. Without patronage, Buddhism is not going to survive. And what does patronage look like? Because we don't have a monarchy and we aren't getting royal patronage, where do we turn for financial support for Dharma in the West? Unfortunately, and this is a very American thing, we turn to capitalism. We turn to the market. And Dharma teachers in America are increasingly turning to the market as a way to compete and survive. And I remember 11 years ago when I was a keynote speaker at this uh, Buddhism in America conference in San Diego, when I showed up there, I was approached by many, many people asking for my website, my CDs, my brochure, and basically my, my marketing plan. And I was so shocked because I realized that I was on a program with almost all the other Dharma teachers who were making their living as Dharma teachers, and they had a whole commercial thing going on. They mm-hmm. had booths with products and books and CDs. And I started thinking 11 years ago about the uh, market-driven nature of Buddhism in America. And I've witnessed, I've looked at it a lot, how it is that we support the Dharma in America is through the market. And it means that everyone who's a Dharma teacher who measures success by the number of students they attract and the amount of money they make and how much they're profiled in our Buddhist magazines, we've measured success less by the integrity of the teachings or the depth of practice or realization and more by the charisma and the pizzazz and it's a market-driven pizzazz. So it alarms me to see Dharma teachers who have been classically trained and have received Dharma transmission, who now are appropriating techniques from the New Age and from pop psychology in order to become popular and famous. And in so doing, they're teaching things that don't look like the Dharma at all. They look like psychotherapy or psychodrama or, you know, sort of dime store relationship advice kinds of things. And I find that very troubling myself because I feel that it betrays the trust that was given to us by our teachers. It doesn't mean that I don't think we have something to say or to offer from the point of view of our own culture, 
But I think we need to be very, very careful about the integrity of what we're doing as Dharma teachers. And if we are grabbed by the desire to be famous, to be rich, to be popular, we are going to be sabotaged as Dharma teachers from the very beginning. On the other hand, I'm very sympathetic because in America, the only way to survive as a Dharma teacher is to have financial support. And the only way to do that that's directly available is the market. So I see that what many of these teachers are doing is doing the best they can to fulfill their commitment as Dharma teachers. And this is the way that's provided to them by our system, by the way things work. The only problem comes when they are lured by the desire to be the biggest, the best, to have the jazziest website with the greatest number of hits, to have full-page ads in Tricycle or uh, Shambhala Sun or Buddha Dharma, and to attract hordes of people to their teachings. And I think it's really risky territory for the entire enterprise of American Buddhism to be relying only on the market. And I think it means... There's no easy solution, but it means we need to be having like summit meetings between the various sanghas and dharma teachers and communities in America to begin to really think how we could save the precious jewel of the dharma in this setting without sabotaging it by the market-driven situation. Mm. It seems like um, the whole idea of royal patronage where very wealthy patrons provide the sustenance for a whole community, there'd be less temptation to try to become more famous because you already have what you need to do what you're there to do, which is teach the Dharma. Well, of course, if you study Buddhist history, you see the gyrations that Buddhist teachers had to go through to seek royal patronage. That's, I guess, another issue that comes it up is. in that situation, yeah. And in China, for instance, uh, when Buddhism went to China, it had to really agree to bow down before the king, the emperor, in order to receive royal patronage. So there were compromises there as well, yeah. but and adaptations. But I'm not sure that they're the same kind of temptations that I see in Buddhism in America. The biggest change I've seen in the last 11 years is it feels to me that Dharma teachers are sometimes getting more extreme in their attempts to be famous than they were 11 years ago. And so that the, concerns me. Mm. You kind of mentioned this, the integrity issue that if the intention is to become famous versus really provide a deep service to people that, but then on the other hand, of course, like you're saying, if they don't have the money to even teach, they obviously can't provide that service. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, you said it's not really clear the solutions, but do you have any sense, having looked at this both as a teacher and then kind of purveying the field, do you see any things that are hopeful or that seem to be working better than just a simple full-on market-driven system? I do feel, and this probably is coming from my own experience, I think it's really good if Dharma teachers have some other means of support. And I really, myself, feel very blessed to be a professor, so I have a salary. I don't have to live on my Dharma teaching income, which is not much. I mean, it's helpful, but it's not much. And my intention for teaching the Dharma is not based on money at all. And I think that any Dharma teacher has to really look carefully at motivation and how much we could be hooked by the desire for fame or wealth or whatever, and be very, very clear about 
the integrity of having some independence from patrons, from popularity and that kind of thing. So I think the ideal thing is if we have some kind of career that can support our Dharma teaching in such a way that we are not reliant entirely on the income we get from Dharma teaching. Seems like it's a real tough situation since there's not a whole lot of societal value put on that kind of knowledge. So it's like there are not a lot of systems That's right. in place to support That's that. That's right. And I think that, again, if we could develop a kind of cross-tradition foundation to support Dharma teachers, to maybe at least uh, subsidize them so that the issue of survival is not there. And then, you know, people can come up with a reasonable living. It's not going to be wealthy, perhaps, but that's fine. None of us are in this for the money. At least I didn't think so. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder, sometimes when I see the, the kind of things that are done in order to draw more people to your center or to your website or to your tapes or CDs, I wonder if uh, perhaps things have just gotten a little out of hand. Mm. One thing I wanted to backtrack to is uh, another kind of uh, critique that you brought up in the talk was that oftentimes now with the the whole issue of Dharma errors, there can be a sense in which if you're published, and this kind of connects in with the popularity piece, then that somehow legitimizes you more so than say if you're a lineage. I think that's really true that uh, one of the things, and I learned this, perspective from a a conversation with a professor from Berkeley, uh, Robert Scharf, who was saying that in these days, the Dharma heirs are chosen by the publishing companies, not by the Dharma teachers, you know, they are teachers. And that it seems that if you've written a book that sells well, then you are a kind of de facto Dharma heir. And it's true that if you write a, a book that really sells, that you have some kind of standing as a Dharma teacher, again, driven by the popularity of the situation. Now, it is really important that people who become Dharma heirs get their word out, that they learn how to write, because writing books is one of the ways to propagate the Dharma. But when publishing companies are standing in for the Dharma lineages themselves, then we have to ask some kind of question about that. Yeah, it seems like a having worked at a spiritual publishing company, it seems like, yeah, there is a fine line because most spiritual publishing companies worth their salt really started because they wanted to help propagate authentic spirituality. And then in the process, they, of course, really do have to stay alive as a company and they they want to make money and so they can continue doing what they're doing. It's almost the same temptations really for a publishing company with those kind of intentions as it is with a teacher in a community. Very much, very much. And I think that... That's natural, given the system that we live in. I think the main point is to develop some kind of self-critical perspective so that we can begin to balance things, because we can smell when things get a little off, and when we seek adulation more than the integrity of our own hearts, that may tell us that we need to back off a little bit and rethink our priorities and our motivations. And I think the publishing companies are in that situation I remember at this keynote, James Shaheen, the editor of Tricycle, standing up and saying, so what should we do, you know, as Tricycle? Right. I mean, should we not take the ads of people? We survive on advertisement. And I don't mean to say that, of course, we shouldn't have ads and we shouldn't have a something that relies on the market to some degree. The question is if that motivation outweighs the initial Dharmic motivation. And yeah. 
I think that's something that we always have to look at. Oh, it's funny because I remember in the early years of my years at Naropa, when Buddhism was not popular at all, there wasn't any problem like this. But as Buddhism has become popular and become sort of hip to be Buddhist, mm. then the dangers of the market kick in. So I remember that when Time Magazine ran a story on the popularity of Buddhism and they sent out reporters to Naropa to interview us, I began saying that I felt nervous about the popularity of Buddhism, worried about what it will mean for the integrity of the Dharma. And so that's a concern I've had for quite some time. I may be just being paranoid. That sounds like a really sane and grounding perspective when there's so much excitement behind Buddhism. I think also, though, this is where I think it would be helpful if we could get together as American Buddhists and really make some kind of judgment about the qualities and systems we'd like to promote and find a way to pool the financial resources of a larger community of Buddhists to maybe provide a foundation where people could apply for grants for worthy projects and things like that, rather than relying on what people will pay for a weekend program, could we find some way to pool our resources so that people could offer programs for free or that we support translation projects, that we support Buddhist education projects, that we support people paying tuition for Buddhist education projects? Is there a way that we could make money available through grants rather than through popularity? I often think that when my generation of Buddhists die off, we will be leaving estates. I mean, my estate won't be anything, but some people's estates will be sizable. If there were a way that we could have a kind of larger foundation so that those estates could go for the support of American Buddhism, maybe in these kind of selected areas, I don't know, some way to provide patronage for the systematic strategic areas that Buddhism needs in order to survive. I think it would be fantastic. Beautiful. I hope that just this conversation may spark in listeners some sense of thinking about the ways they can contribute to the development of Buddhism in America in a strategic way, just like the student in your classroom who made such a big difference. Yeah, it was amazing. She gave money to a monastery. She gave money to a large translation project. She gave money to basically the Shambhala community, and also to Naropa University. She gave a lot of money to Naropa. She gave a million dollars to Naropa at a time when we were on the verge of closing. We almost closed, and if it hadn't been for that generous beginning of our endowment, Naropa would have been completely past tense. This was in the early 80s. And this donation at a strategic time in our history meant that we were able to keep our doors open. And she also gave us a piece of land that's on our current uh, Arapaho campus that she just bought and gave to us. And it was such an amazing thing. The thing I remember the most is Naropa was in terrible financial shape in those years. This was like 1982, and we were missing paychecks right and left, and we were on the verge of closing our doors. I was missing paychecks all the time and working other jobs, and word came of an anonymous donation. And within six months, everything changed at Naropa. Our, our paychecks were guaranteed. We began to build, and we began to develop a much more stable foundation. And this woman was still my student. 
I didn't know anything about her having given the money. After she graduated from Naropa, she called me up and invited me to lunch. And she showed up driving a BMW. She'd always driven a beat-up old pickup truck and wore carpenter pants and sort of, you know, sweatshirts and things like that. She was dressed very nicely, had beautiful shoes. I was just staring at her. She drove up in a BMW, and she took me to the Boulderado for lunch. And at lunch, she told me that she had been the one who had given the money to Naropa at that time. And I just wept. I couldn't, it, it, I, words couldn't express my gratitude because she saved the university. And she said, I just, after graduating, I just wanted to tell you that I had done this, but I didn't want you to know before. And it just was so incredibly generous of her. And she made such a huge difference in all of our lives by this gift. These kinds of things, if we got together and planned what it is we could provide foundation support for, key elements for the survival of Buddhism, maybe we can't agree across traditions, but maybe there's ways we can at least begin to pool our resources and think more strategically about how to survive as a tradition. And I think it's what we're going to need to do in the century to come, if we're going to make sure that it's not just a kind of flaky, watered-down, made-up situation, something that really carries the living blessings of the traditions that we practice. So before we close, maybe if I could ask a little bit about monasticism, where you see it heading, this is something you said you wanted to come back to. I think the returns are not in on monasticism. I personally think The monasticism does need to be established in this country. It may never play the role it did in Asia, where it was the major force in all the Buddhist traditions. But there is some precious gem that monasticism has always been for Buddhism. And I think that having authentic monasteries in our traditions is really, really important in the West, so that there's some kind of repositor of a certain lineage of practice and study and mentorship that we otherwise could lose. So even though there are many who poo-poo monasticism in American Buddhism, I wanted to put a plug in there because I think it's really much too precious to just shelve and say it's not American. That's subject for more conversation perhaps at another time. No, actually, I think we should maybe go into that a little more. Okay. I think it would be interesting and it's really relevant especially because when we look around or I look around, I don't really see many monastic communities that are working that are convert Buddhists, that are Western Buddhists. I know of one Theravada group in California, California. Ajahn Amaro. Ajahn Amaro. Yeah, but very, very few. Yes, there are very few, and there may always be very few, but my experience of monasteries first began at Tassajara when I was a Zen student, and it's a real monastery. It's a Zen monastery, and it's an amazing place. And... I learned something in my bones about practice, being at Tassajara, learning how to cook in the kitchen, learning how to slice mushrooms, learning how to lead a monastic day, getting up at four in the morning for zazen, and then, you know, during sashin, doing long days, and the whole cradle of monastic training at Tassajara was just absolutely amazing. And then in my time as a Tibetan Buddhist, I've spent a lot of time at Gumpo Abbey, in northern Nova Scotia, Pema Chodron is the abbess of Gampo Abbey. 
And it's an amazing community. Again, very remote, very deep practice, practice in one's bones so that the routines and practices of the day are so potent and the study part is so rich as well. I also have had a number of monastics as students at Naropa, and it's been very difficult for them being solitary monastics in the U.S., but at Naropa, they've been able to find something that is at least a little bit like a monastic community. My feeling is that the monastic vocation is not something that many people will hold, but there are those for whom it is deep in who they are. Pema Chodron's a very close friend. She has monasticism deeply embodied in her, and her life as a monastic has produced such incredible benefit for many, many people. She would not be beloved the way she is if she were not a monastic. It's just very clear. There's been a kind of purification of her over the decades that I've known her that comes from her monastic discipline and training. So that didn't come from nowhere. That came from exertion and blessing and commitment and practice and study. So I think we need to make a place and endow monasteries to continue. And there will be different kinds. You know, Tupton Children's Monastery is the strictest in the Tibetan tradition here. She follows the most strict version of the vows. Gumpo Abbey has a slightly altered thing. There may be different kinds of monasteries. Zen monasteries are very different from Theravada or Tibetan ones. But I think we need to have those places in our culture as part of the mosaic of what makes up American Buddhism. And I don't think they are the same as our practice centers where we go for a short-term retreat, like a month or three months. And those are short-term compared to the monastic life that goes on for years. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.